Hello, and welcome to another thrilling, exciting, mind-blowing edition of The Liberal Lawyer. I am not trying to make this the cure for insomnia, I promise. But I realize that today's topic might make a few of you just kind of tune out. I hope it doesn't, but it might. Now, today's topic is inspired by a couple of things. Number one, there's been a lot of chatter recently about it. We're going to get to what it is in just a second. Number two, it is an area that I actually practiced a long time ago as as a young lawyer. I've been a lawyer for over 20 years. And in the very first few years that I actually practiced law, I practiced federal taxation. Wake up. Didn't mean for you to fall asleep. It's an area that I think a lot of people, they kind of know about. They've sort of, you know, they pay taxes, obviously. Most of them pay, most people pay income tax of some kind. Well, some people pay income tax of some kind. A lot of people pay sales tax. You pay sales tax on virtually everything you buy. Depending on what state you live in, you might not get taxed on certain necessities or things like that. But, but you do pay a lot of taxes. And... It is, it's an area that pretty much touches everybody's life, lives. Now, why do I want to talk about it? Again, I mentioned in the uh, er, very early part of January 2019, right after the, the new Congress was sworn in on January 3rd, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I think is uh, from the 14th District of New York, new, new, freshman, uh, new freshman congressperson, was on, I guess, I think it was 60 Minutes, and she was being interviewed by Anderson Cooper. And she was taken way out of context, even though her words were right there for everybody to hear. The out of context part was that the Republicans were all up in arms that she was proposing a 70% tax rate. That's not actually what she was doing. She was pointing out that we've had 70% tax rates in the past. That's entirely true. In fact, we've had 90% tax rates in the past, I think, during wartime. So certainly we've had very high marginal tax rates. But she was also pointing out that it was really should, should only be on the very highest earners in the society. She wasn't proposing or talking about really hiking taxes to the sky on people who are earning, you know, the, I think it's the, the 46,000 or 47,000 is the national median income right now or something. And she wasn't talking about that. Uh, what she was talking about, though, is that people who earn that much more or make that much more should be expected to pay a little more. And fundamentally, she's right. But this got me to thinking about a tax policy or, or a type of tax policy that is really kind of unheard of in this country, at least in the modern day. But something that I've considered for a very long time. Now, I have not practiced tax law in a while. It's been a number of years. But it's not like I have forgotten what tax policy is for or what it's supposed to do. And what's interesting is that a number of years ago, I came up with a, an idea for a tax policy in this country that has actually found pretty much universal support from anybody, for any, with anybody I've ever mentioned it to and described it to. And that includes both Republicans and Democrats. In other words, I have Republican, I won't call them friends, but I have Republican colleagues in the law field with whom I have to interact. 
and I, I, I have to be cordial to them and things like this. I'm not thrilled about their policies, but I, I kind of, I have to speak reasonably with them and I have to be civil and they have to do the same with me, even though they're not happy about my policies. And what's fascinating is that whenever I've kind of floated this idea of mine, I have gotten universal thumbs up from both Republicans and Democrats on this, and we'll get to it in a couple of minutes. But I wanted to talk about a little bit of historical backdrop here regarding tax policy in this country that might sort of help people understand how we got here. Because I think there, there is nobody alive today who remembers what it was like when corporations were still treated the way they were supposed to be treated. Because things started to change in the 19th century, and, there, and it was, would have changed before 1890. I don't think there's anybody alive today who was alive before 1890, and, and if there is, first, first of all, they're few and far between. Second of all, they definitely would not have been old enough to understand what was going on. I mean, if somebody is alive today who was born in, let's say, 1882, it's tough to imagine that he or she would have been old enough to really understand what was going on as things were working their way through the courts, which is why I want to give you a little bit of a, an historical perspective of how we got here. Corporations are creatures of statute. What that means is that a corporation is an entity that is supposed to be separate from, his own, from its owners, the owners being people, and legislatures understand and recognize that. But the whole point of making a corporation separate from its owners was because corporations were not supposed to be people. If the legislatures wanted corporations to be people, there would have been no need to make them a separate entity because the owners already are people. So what would be the point of producing a whole nother person without the advent of having sex. You see the see where I'm going with that? Corporations, as creatures of statute, are supposed to be treated in a way that you would never treat a person. So they're supposed to pay attention to laws that are strictly supposed to govern and regulate their behavior, and it's supposed to, those laws are supposed to control every facet of a corporation's existence. Notice I didn't say life. Existence. They do exist, not denying that. But they're not people. Now, what happened? In the 19th century, unfortunately, several clever corporate attorneys, people in my profession, and remember, 99% of lawyers give the rest of us a bad name, started taking cases before the courts and making arguments that corporations had, God, constitutional rights. No, they don't. But they started making this argument. And unfortunately, the courts, particularly at the federal level, started buying this argument for some god-awful reason. And so by the time the early 20th century rolled around, the courts had pretty much gone down the road of conferring personhood on corporations when in fact 
corporations were never supposed to be that. Well, once corporations started to gain this newfound identity under the law, the natural outgrowth of that was they started to lobby. And the more that they lobbied, the more they got the playing field tilted in their favor. So the grotesque, the grotesque transformation of corporations from creatures of statute and having to be beholden to the laws became corporations weren't creatures of statute anymore. They were now buying off legislatures up to and including the Federal Congress of the United States. And as the years went by, the playing field, as Elizabeth Warren would say, became more and more and more tilted in their favor and more and more and more tilted against, guess who? Everybody who's listening to me right now. Me too, by the way. You know, I'm, not, I'm not exempt from that. And so what we get is this bizarre system where corporations have all but become the constituents of elected officials. And the actual constituents of elected officials, people like you and me, literally don't matter. We are only there to, to fill, their, fill their vote requirement to stay in office. I've said this for a very long time, by the way, that it becomes harder and harder to fault politicians for doing what they do when their constituents keep reelecting them. After all, if the constituents are of that mindset where they believe that somebody should simply be returned to office, well, then the person in office is going to say to himself or herself, I must be doing something right. So there's that. Now, let's get to the idea of why I wanted to talk about this and why it fits in so well with the prevailing discussion. If I said to you, Mr. or Mrs. Listener, the Fortune 500 in the United States accounts for roughly two-thirds of what we used to call gross national product, we now call gross domestic product. Two-thirds! If I said to you that, that the Fortune 500 account for that much collectively of our economy, what would you think that they would pay as a percentage in total tax revenues that are collected by the IRS every year at the federal level. I'm not talking about the state or local level. I'm talking about federal level. And this is this is a this is a discussion about national policy. So, to recap, the Fe the Fortune 500 account for two thirds, roughly speaking, of our gross domestic product every year. What is the collective tax revenue that they pay? What would you say? Would you say, well, it's got to be dollar to the dollar, right? So. Two-thirds. <laughs> You'd be wrong. 60%? Accounting for things like deduction and leakage and whatnot? Nope. 50%? Try again. 40? Nope. 30, 25, 20? Wrong, wrong, wrong. 10? Not even close. The Fortune 500 in this, in this com country pays as a percentage of total federal tax revenue, a little bit under 3% of the total tax revenue. 
Roughly 60% of the total tax revenue paid by this country's citizens, or paid by, I should say, paid to the IRS, is paid by the citizens. In other words, you and me, we are contributing about three-fifths of all of the tax revenue that the IRS collects on a national level every single year. And the entities, the very few entities, those 500 companies in the Fortune 500, are paying a little bit under 3% total. Does that sound fair to you? Because it doesn't sound fair to me. It also doesn't sound right. I mean, those numbers, they're correct. You can look them up. But that's not fundamentally right. And so, in my way of looking at things, and I would hope that you would agree, and, and as I said, I've gotten universal kind of acceptance on this from both Republicans and Democrats, that the fundamental structure of the way that we do tax policy in this country has to change. And it has to change so that it actually benefits the country as a whole, not just the IRS, not just Congress, because Congress is great at wasting money. I'm not going to dispute that. But that's really not what this discussion is about. This discussion is about whether tax policy should be fundamentally viewed in a different way and altered accordingly to make sure that we have a tax policy that actually fits with what's really happening at the, in the economic environment of our country. And so I've come up with some ideas. Rather, I mean, well, I shouldn't say rather. I mean, we, we should still have a graduated income tax for individuals. I mean, if somebody personally is making 10 million, 20 million, 100 million, a billion a year, whatever, I mean, they should be paying uh, a fair amount of money. I mean, even if the percentage isn't, you know, 90% like it was in the early 1940s during the World War II effort, the point is that the actual dollar numbers that they should be paying is fairly high. But we shouldn't be accepting the idea that under 3% of our tax revenues comes from the Fortune 500, which account for, once again, about two-thirds of our total economy in this country. Especially when the tax policy that we have has actually encouraged, over the last few decades, the outsourcing, of, or as Mitt Romney likes to say, the offshoring, I don't see the difference here, but the offshoring of jobs. Essentially, if you are in the Fortune 500 and you are given the benefit of essentially taking jobs away from Americans, giving, them, giving those same jobs to people in other countries at far, far lower wages, being able to derive the benefit of having access to the American market and keeping the, keeping the money, keeping a lot of money offshore out of the jurisdiction of the American tax system. In other words, famously, Apple Corporation, well, well, nobody knows exactly how much they have stashed. The estimates are that they have several hundred billion and maybe even a, a trillion dollars or more essentially held outside of the United States because of a tax system that allows companies like that to not repatriate money, and as long as they don't repatriate money, they're not actually taxed on it, which is, by the way, fundamentally at odds with the personal system of income tax that we have in this country, where if you are an American citizen, 
living overseas, you are taxed on your worldwide, actually it doesn't matter if you're living overseas, you are taxed on your worldwide income as an American citizen, as a person. You still have to pay tax on money that you would earn in Bangladesh or something, even if you didn't bring back that money. Because we have the Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC, which on your as part of your tax return every year, in case you've ever noticed, you actually have to answer a question. Do you own or have control over any account offshore that's worth more than $10,000? If you answer that question, yes, boom, you become subject to U.S. tax. That's as a person. And yet corporations, which, by the way, clamor all the time that they're people, also somehow get to have their, have their cake and eat it too, have it both ways, in other words, by saying, oh, well, we're not people for the tax policy situation. We, we want to be people for everything else, but not for the taxes. So we actually get to do something that American citizens or American people don't get to do, which is keep money offshore and not get taxed on it. Well, how does that work? I'm not too thrilled about it. You shouldn't be either. So how are we going to clean up this mess? Well, one thing I've been thinking about a lot over the years is a kind of a hybrid system. In other words, we could have a system where instead of making the tax uh, instead of making the tax system applicable to everybody across the board because we would get inequities, we have a special tax system which would be all, which would be sort of equivalent if you've ever heard of the alternative minimum tax to the corporate alternative minimum tax. And that corporate alternative minimum tax would actually apply only to the Fortune 500. Now, how are we going to keep them from gaming the system? That's, I actually don't think all that difficult. We employ what's called a nerve center test. All right. In the legal world, and the lawyers who might be listening to me right now will understand, we have a nerve center test. And what, what essentially that is a way of doing, it's ex a way of examining a corporate entity and figuring out from this test what is the real substance of the corporate entity most of the time we apply it in a way that determines where the corporate entity really is headquartered so if a corporation thinks that it wants to convince a court that it's headquartered in zug switzerland when it's really headquartered in oh at minneapolis minnesota the nerve center test will actually help us determine that. We can apply the same test to determine whether a company is actually in the Fortune 500 so that they might try to break themselves up or make themselves look like on paper like they're not the for a Fortune 500 company. But if we apply an an a nerve center test or an analog thereof, we can figure out whether they really are in the Fortune 500. So I'm not overly concerned about them gaming the system. I think that a statutory scheme could actually be set up for that, but this is more of a policy-based uh, discussion. And so if you are in the Fortune 500, you would be subject to the alternative, the corporate alternative minimum tax that I'm talking about here. And what that would mean is that you would essentially pay an access fee for the privilege of accessing the American market. The American market even though it's only 325 million people, which some would argue is kind of large, is still one of the best markets to, to which to have access in this world. It is still one of the most profitable markets to have access 
It is still one of the, the greatest in terms of consumerism. It is a, if you don't, if you're a mega corporation and you were to give up your access to the American market, you would probably see a steep drop off in, in revenues and profitability. That would be my guess. Um, so the, the Fortune 500 would fall into this and they would, in the way that I see things, I think they should have to pay an access fee for the privilege of having access to the American market. That access fee, we can debate or we can discuss about how that would be assessed. Would that be a percentage of gross revenues or would that be a flat fee? Personally, I'm, an actual, I'm actually in favor of a flat fee because it would guarantee a certain amount of money. Let me put some numbers to this. The average Fortune 500 company, the arithmetic mean, this is not, this is not the um, median, this is the arithmetic mean for Fortune 500 companies, have gross revenues of about $2 billion a month. Just think about that for a minute. So the average Fortune 500 company, or arithmetically speaking, takes in about $24 billion a year in gross revenues. Some, have, some take in more, some take in less. I get that. I'm talking about the average. If, just for round numbers, and again, I'm not saying that this has to be the number, but if the average Fortune 500 company were to pay a flat access fee for, for access to the American market of $2 billion a year, then the Fortune 500 would essentially be yielding about $1 trillion of tax revenue per year. I've already told you that they pay a little less than 3% in total tax revenues. Putting some numbers to that, it breaks down like this. In fiscal 2019, the projected federal tax revenue total for this whole country, for the IRS, they're supposed to collect roughly $3.42 trillion. All right. So a little under 3% of that is in the $100 billion to $120 billion range or something. With 60% of the total $3.42 trillion coming from people like you and me, that's a pretty heavy, uh, pretty heavy burden to shoulder. Put that together with what I said a couple of minutes ago, the idea that multinational corporations or corporations in the Fortune 500 that do business all over the world are allowed to keep outside the United States the money that they generate there. And if they don't repatriate it, they are not paying American tax. So they can hide it in places like Ireland or Switzerland or Bangladesh or wherever. And they are essentially stockpiling that money totally free of tax while totally having access to the American market. But if they actually had to pay a little something for that access to the American market, it would not hurt them one bit. And for those companies that it would hurt technically, well, maybe we'd have to devise some way of, of saying to them, well, you want access to this market, you're going to have to pay for that. Now it's a matter of how much. But I wouldn't actually, I'm not in favor of the idea of bargaining with them because after all, they are creatures of statute, remember? I am in favor of charging them a flat fee. Now, we could make it a gross revenue analysis, or a gross revenue tax, I should say, but then they're going to game the system in all kinds of other ways. 
and I'm really part of the whole point of this is to not allow them to game the system. The points that I'm trying to make here on a policy level is that while it's nice to be able to say that perhaps we can have 60%, 70%, 80%, 90%, whatever, pick a number for personal income taxes that maybe the the very wealthy should pay some pay a little more. The the fact of the matter is that there aren't enough really high earners in those brackets to actually make up much of a difference there. But the Fortune 500, which again accounts for two thirds of our total economy, certainly has more than enough means to be able to give up, let's say, one month's worth of revenue each. I mean, look at it this way. Companies that have essentially stolen jobs from the American worker and outsourced them to places like Bangladesh and China and India, no disrespect to those countries, but they do have much lower wages, they essentially have told themselves it's okay to take money away from American workers, steal jobs from American workers, and make them go without. They, those companies also seem to be just fine with the idea that, you know, the government shutdown is going on right now, or the partial government shutdown, that 800,000, roughly speaking, federal workers or contractors are going without pay. It's now, you know, we're now into about a month, or close to, I guess we're, what, into four, week four? So uh, it's almost a month now that those people haven't collected a paycheck. A lot of companies seem to feel, feel that that's just perfectly peachy okay with them. So why can't we ask a Fortune 500 company to give up one month's worth of revenue every year to basically have access to the American market? And it's not like I don't have a plan for the idea of abating that. For example... Let's take General Electric. Not that I want to use them as a punching bag, but in 2011, famously, and by the way, there are more recent examples, but this is the one that I think a lot of people will remember. Famously in 2011, General Electric had a $0 federal tax bill. That's not even the whole story. The whole story is that I think it was, it was either 4 or $4.5 billion dollars that they got from the federal government that was classified as a tax refund. I don't know... Anybody, either me or you listening to this, or anybody else that you might know, who could actually get a refund on money they did not pay. That's not what a refund is. And yet the federal government in 2011 famously not only collected zero dollars from General Electric, but actually said, you know what, <laughs> General Electric, because you're so good at gaming the system, because you have an entire office building in New York City full of tax lawyers devoted to doing nothing but gaming the system. We are going to reward you for playing the games that you play with the American tax system. Here's a check of taxpayer money draining $4.5 billion from the federal treasury. Good job, General Electric. Okay, so I'm going to use General Electric for that reason because I think a lot of people listening to this are certainly old enough to remember that. If General Electric wants to continue to have access to the American market, they're going to pay under my system, minimum, minimum, two or three billion dollars a year, or whatever, whatever would be one month of their revenue, 
to actually have access to that market. Oh, and by the way, we're still going to hit them with a corporate tax, but that's besides the point. They're going to have to pay a minimum amount. They're not going to get a refund. They're in the Fortune 500, and they should not get a refund, and they should have to pay to have access to the American market to sell goods to people like you and me. Because my tax dollars and your tax dollars shouldn't be going to them simply because they have creative lawyers who essentially have worked with lobbyists who have bought off your congressperson. Does that make a little bit of sense to you? It makes some sense to me. So the way they would get the abatement is that if companies like General Electric were to start bringing, bringing jobs back to these shores, you want to bring down that, that mandatory minimum access fee? Fine. Take jobs away from the places where you've sent them overseas and start employing Americans again. At a, at a guaranteed minimum wage of, you know, whatever it is, $10, $12, $15 an hour, I don't know. It would bring an awful lot more money back into this economy. It would, you know, we could give them, an, uh, we could start to abate their, their minimum amount of money that they have to pay to the American uh, government to have access to this market. And it would start to build, rebuild what we classically call the middle class. And again, I've gotten universal acceptance on this idea from both Republicans and Democrats. So while I am the liberal lawyer, this idea is a universally good one. At least I think it is. If you like this idea, and I hope you do, let me know. Maybe leave a feedback in the comment section on iTunes. By the way, I have not even touched on a whole bunch of other facets of tax policy or tax law in this discussion. I am trying to present what I think is a framework for a policy that I think makes a lot of sense. And I can't emphasize enough that I've never had somebody say to me, that's a terrible idea. At least, I should, I should say this. I've never had somebody say to me, that's a terrible idea, where the person was an ordinary thinking human being. Not talking about somebody who's running a multi-billion dollar corporation. They're, of course, going to hate it. But again, I haven't even talked about what the policy should be on just corporate existence. This is strictly about a tax law idea. We could talk about corporate existence some other day. So again, this, this podcast is available on think, places like iTunes and Stitcher and Anchor and a whole bunch of other places. I'm on Twitter at the Lib Lawyer, the liberal lawyer, you know, that my handle is at the Lib Lawyer. Maybe leave some feedback. Let me know what you think. Kind of curious. This is the liberal lawyer, and I look forward to seeing you in episode, thrilling episode number four.